So our speaker today is Ali Hochschild. She's a very distinguished sociologist, Professor Emerita at Berkeley. She's somebody who has been at the heart of research on uh, domestic life and uh, for, for many years. She's the author of the books like The Managed Heart, The Time Bind, and her most recent book is called The Outsourced Self. She's the person who coined the term and wrote about it, the second shift, which has been recently described as the most influential argument in the last 30 years in the study of domestic life. Today, she's going to be talking to us about how economic imperatives and social trends have shifted more of our human, family and family lives into the commercial marketplace and what this means about who we are. The reason why I think this is a dangerous argument and one that's very interesting to dis discuss in this forum is really because it forces us to examine a whole lot of things about our lives that we do without thinking, uh, about our choices, our decisions, about things that are really at the heart of our lives and our relationships um, in a way that sometimes can be a little uncomfortable. And although I'm sure you'll have the opportunity to laugh on the way through at the fact that um, uh, in an American context, things are even more extreme. There will be things here that are extremely pertinent for the way we're leading our lives now. Please welcome to the stage, Ali Hoekschild. Thank you, it's a great pleasure to be here. But you know, I have to start with a, with a puzzle here. I've just written a book about very nice people who are um, asking for services and providing services. Uh, these services are um, often necessary and they save time and offer expertise and, you know, they're really nice. I came to really love them in a certain way. Few exceptions, but... Um, and yet, here I am, and here you are, at a festival of dangerous ideas. So I, I had to ask myself, what's, what, and I want you to ask, what is dangerous here? We could start with something that George Orwell uh, once wrote. Um, to see what is in front of our nose needs a constant struggle. <laughs> and we have to ask, um, what is it we're struggling against? And um, what is it we're, what, what are we thinking when we're not looking at it? We're saying, oh, I'll look at it tomorrow. I don't have time to look at it now. Um, it's not important. And we say these things to ourselves. Um, while we're putting an issue, a social issue, perhaps, under the rug. So, um, what I love about this festival is that the very title opens out a social space for us all to actually get our flashlights out and uh, look under that rug. So, uh, what I'd like to do today is to take you on a journey uh, with me, tell you some stories from people that uh, I met along the way, and explore um, what might be dangerous. So we can start with a perfectly normal, middle-class uh, kind of summer camp that one could call outsourcing. 
And of course, in the 19th century, um, or even 40 years ago, the upper class has always outsourced its personal life, and there could be a you know, maid uh, coming in um, with a black uniform and frilly collar serving tea. Uh, so there's nothing new about uh, outsourcing, but what we're seeing now is more for middle class people, and it's perfectly, I'll start with what's perfectly normal, summer camp, um, child care. Um, hope you get a good one. And uh, so that in the American scene, entirely normal. And, and <clears throat> goes back quite a few decades. But now what's different this time is that services are more expert driven and call, they're more sliced and diced. So now you can hire someone to pick the babysitter, you know? <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, a babysitter headhunter. <laughs> and then when you're uh, preparing the house, you know, so you have to pull out the electric plugs and, you know, baby-proof the house. Have you, have you not done that? Well, you can call in somebody. And then if you run into a problem, there's a service that helps you potty train the child called Tinkle Tinkle Little Star. <laughs> There's even a service that helps you name your child called a nameologist. And there is a, um, a, a woman, Ms. Corwitz, who says, I'm quoting from my book, believes that a name, the sight and sound of it, the initials, the possible nicknames, design the child's personality. So Garth, <laughs> encourages sports. <laughs> Zeta uh, and, and Canon and Ford <laughs> foster art. I wouldn't have thought Ford for art, but um, there you go. Um, find out which names, she says, encourage weight problems, attention deficit <laughs> disorder, fear of intimacy, poverty syndrome and addiction <laughs> and learn which names stimulate leadership and financial uh, reward and creativity and satisfying soulmate connections. So you'll definitely want to hire her. <laughs> but in a way, that very service encapsulates the thing I think we need our flashlights on. It creates an anxiety on one side of the ledger and it, it answers the anxiety on the other. I'll return to that. So uh, we have birthday parties and birthday party planners. Uh, here is uh, a clown who need a little um, for the younger set. Then there's uh, something for the girls and something for the boys. This is for the adolescents in Long Island uh, at um, a large bar mitzvahs. You hire a party animator. Who is that? That's someone that's really kind of cool dancer. And you, you have all these shy, gawky 14-year-olds that are kind of afraid to get on the on the uh, dance floor. And so Mr. Cool comes out, and it's... It's fun. <laughs> so, um, so there's birthday 
party planners. And I'll tell you a story of a very nice guy. I'm telling you, these are really nice people. Work very long hours, his wife too, and his six-year-old daughter had friends whose parents hired professional birthday party planners. And he thought, this is ridiculous. Look, I don't get enough time with my kids. I, I, we can at least put on a good birthday party. And so he sent out the invitations. He blew up the balloons. He did a uh, organized day, pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, he put that on the wall. And so uh, entertainment was provided. But from other parties, he got the idea that there had to be an entertainer. So. Uh, who would that be? Well, he would be the entertainer. So he got the idea that it would be fun to dress up like Crocodile Dundee. You'll, you'll uh, Australia being the great inspiration here. So he put on a hat and he put on boots and uh, he, uh, when the time came, uh, walked in front of uh, these little eight or ten six-year-olds, and uh, he talked about crocodiles and how they were different from alligators, and then he talked about koala bears and kangaroos, and, and there was a dead silence. <laughs> and then the party began to kind of that the, all these wiggly six-year-olds, you know, began to fall apart because unless they were, had an, a, a party director, they didn't organize themselves. So all the parents put down their glasses of white wine on the table and just you know, came forward to organize the kids. And this man, Michael, um, was very distressed and a neighbor came up to him who'd been watching from the kitchen. And she said, Michael, get real. Party planners know what six-year-olds think is funny. Leave it to them. And what happened was, over a period of time, um, he began to think, you know what, she's right. It, it's, I, I just, it's, it's more difficult than I thought it would be. So um, she was right. And then I asked, his daughter. I interviewed the wife, uh, and then I interviewed the daughter. And the, here's what the daughter said. She said, oh, at first, uh, we, we thought it was um, a problem. And then uh, after that, we thought it was hilarious. And now I think, what a dad I have who can jump in with three feet and, uh, um, uh, and love me that much. So. Uh, that's a story, uh, I came to think of it as a take back in a world, upper middle class suburb, um, where, where the trend is one way. He was pushing against it in that kind of way. All right, it isn't just children. Oh, here's, <laughs> in these uh, birthdays, of course, who is thanked isn't the father or the mother, it's the birthday planner, in this case, Sophie. <laughs> And uh, so the, Sophie is being asked, um, you know, thank you for helping make my birthday so special. And often these thank you letters are, so what are you doing next Saturday, Sophie? <laughs> All right. It's not just um, uh, 
children, of course, but uh, animals. You can hire someone uh, to walk your dog, to feed your dog, to administer medicines to your dog, to mind your dog, to groom your dog, to dye the hair of your dog. <laughs> um, and, uh, and offer therapy to your dog. Kind of, this is California, okay. Um, but it, it's interesting when people talk about dog walking. One man I talked to said, look, my wife and I, we work very hard. Uh, we need a dog walker. Uh, love the dog, the kids love the dog, and we're not home, so Monday to Friday, we, um, we hire a walker. And then he raised his voice, and it was with a great deal of feeling that he said, but never on Saturday, <laughs> or Sunday, because if you have a dog, uh, and you don't walk your dog on Saturday morning, or Saturday afternoon, or Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon, why have a dog? <laughs> and that was always a sign to me as I was talking to people where people were drawing a line because everybody is drawing lines when you live in market times. These are from Australia, by the way. There we go. Now, it's not just animals and, and children, but there are services that go even farther into our personal lives. Uh, the two big for-profit uh, matchmaking services in the United States are Match.com and uh, eHarmony, but you have Great Expectations, you have BigChurch.com, Asia Friend, Platinum Romance, and OkCupid, and many, many others. Um, and here again, I uh, uh, interviewed a woman who was uh, 49, divorced, lonely, and wanted to find, as she said, a partner to uh, live the rest of my life with. And she was afraid to get on Match.com, you know, didn't know how to do it, so she hired a love coach. <laughs> She was in New Jersey, and he was in um, Burbank, uh, outside of um, Los Angeles, California. I interviewed them both. They never met. And um, so this very well-meaning love coach said, uh, look, Grace, um, if you're looking for love, you have to, it's work. You, know, you really have to put in the hours, the FaceTime. <laughs> And uh, she said, okay, I'm a hard-working person. She was an engineer. Um, and you're in the world's largest love mall. So you have to brand yourself. You have to stand out. And she said, well, I wasn't thinking about brands, but okay. Uh -huh. um, and then he said, um, and you should know, there's a one to 10 rating system. At your age, looks like, four or five, and you know, there are two men that are, want to date nine women, and uh, so just be prepared. And she said, okay, he's arming me, this is, all right, okay. Uh, and then he said, you want to, don't want to waste time, you want good ROI. Do you know what that is? <laughs> Return on investment. 
And so she said, she's a lovely person, she says, well, okay, this is a means to an end. It isn't the end itself. And uh, so she, she proceeded, and he picked the photograph. He helped shape her uh, message statement, her description of herself. He coached her on um, online conversation, and then he offered, hey, I have great in intuition. I can scan through the replies of guys that are interested in you and pick out one that I think would really be great. Well, she said, I have intuition too. <laughs> and uh, I want to be able to say to the man I meet, um, who turns out to be Mr. Wright, that I picked him out. So she drew her line there. But this was the world she found herself in, where she drew the line. And before she met Mr. Wright, which she did, uh, she met Mr. Wrong. And as they parted, something that really stood out to her uh, happened. He said to her, look, I'm sorry this hasn't worked out, but I'm going to go back online and find someone just like you. just like you. And she thought to herself, am I a box of cereal that you can go into aisle number four and you've got one box of cereal and it's just like the next box of cereal? You know, had something happened in a, in a way of conceiving of human relations along this well-meaning way? Um, it's not, uh, here we are. That was, uh, Okay, now um, we have life coaches of many sorts for many ethnicities and many stages of life. In fact, there are so many specializations among life coaches. Um, you know, early stage of a relationship, making the relationship last, uh, making it come to a good end, looking for number two. Each stage, uh, there. Uh, is a coach for so that there's a general, it's like having a general practitioner, general life coach. <laughs> it's the one that can refer you to the specialists. <laughs> family photographs. Someone can come into your home and arrange your family photograph. That Uncle Fred on the left, you know, in that person's handwriting. Um, and not only that, there now is a, since these are more uh, taken over by your Blackberry, uh, but now there's a service where a videographer can come into your home in front of a grandma and get grandma's story and uh, videograph her. So, um, you know, grandma, what was it like growing, growing up on the farm? That's a professional who's getting um, the elderly person's story. All right, you can go, uh, if, you're, if you've met someone online who's perfect, <laughs> then you have to propose, but how are you going to do this all by yourself, that perfect <laughs> ring discovery moment, you know, um, with, uh, you know, helpers in the bushes waiting to see if she finds it. Um, so then you propose with that help, and then before you get married, there is a premarital um, 
therapy, uh, which actually I was learning that they assign for this the second shift. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not so bad. <laughs> the book I wrote about how men and women should share the work at home. And then, of course, there is uh, the wedding planner and the selector of the right music and so on. And we're moving on then to um, old age. Uh, someone, you can hire someone if your elderly parent is in Perth or Brisbane or some other city, you can hire someone to be a, a loving, friendly visitor to your parent, or even if your parent lives nearby but you don't have time. I think it'll work out like those Dear Sophie letters, you know. <laughs> Thank you, hired friend. Uh, someone will help you. Uh, there are nursing homes, but now, of course, there are specialists who help you pick the nursing home and who bring the family, the quarreling family, together to uh, be able to agree on where grandma should go. Um, and finally, uh, for grief, you have the Shiva sisters who will help you grieve and have a, uh, a ceremony at home and uh, then uh, will help you um, attend to the grave with reverent grave attenders. All right, we could say, look, what is dangerous about all this? After all, I mean, we are, women are all working in the in the workforce, and in America, we're nearly half of uh, the entire workforce. This saves time and offers expertise. Um, so, uh, you might say, are we creating a space between us and our own lives? But what is going into that space? Let's look at that. There is a market Oh, here's rent a friend. Yeah. All right. This is Australia. <laughs> well, suppose you don't don't have time really to find a friend. You know, it, you're awfully busy, uh, and this this helps. Um, and there is uh, rent a dad. Now, he doesn't look awfully sure of what... <laughs> what he's being rented for. Um, but uh, uh, he's... Uh, then there's this, you know. You can let a man into the house and be safe. He's vetted. Um, it's a chain in the United States. And then we have rent a grandma. And in fact, um, you don't just have to take the first grandma <laughs> that comes. <laughs> the big benefit is she doesn't text or tweet while <laughs> while waiting for your, watching your kids. She doesn't know how to. <laughs> and 
And you can pick, you know, one that lets you eat sweets and one that, you know, <laughs> will uh, uh, watch uh, television programs with you and so on. And then, of course, there is rent a mom. And, uh, and part of, um, of this notion of, of motherhood has historically involved cooking. In America, uh, a century ago, 98% of all food dollars went toward uh, food which was both prepared and consumed in the home. Today, half of food dollars uh, is used in that way. And what's fascinating is in my interviews, I would go into a home and people would say, oh, hey, by the way, have you seen our new stove? <laughs> or look, we've got a new, a new cooker, a new microwave over here, or there'd be a, a kitchen remodel. It was almost like a person in the house. I was being introduced to this, to this stove, you know, or oven. And uh, then when I would sit down and ask them, well, how about cooking or a busy day? Oh, we don't cook. <laughs> and I thought, how interesting. It's, <laughs> it's like the stove had become a totem or an icon, uh, a little like a fireplace, <laughs> you know, that once had a function. But we have a fireplace and we put our most precious uh, photographs above it. it. It becomes like a religious altar, really, in a home. It has symbolic significance, but it's not that often we put a fire in it. Is that happening to the stove, I wondered? In America, we're on our way. Okay, so there's a way of talking, renta, mom and dad, and so on. But also a way of thinking. There is a new service called Family 360, which is a consulting service where, you know, if you go to the office um, and every so often a consultant will come in, evaluate how you're doing, and interview your boss, your subordinates, your coworkers, and give you an evaluation and um, some suggestions for improval. Now consulting services are going into families and interviewing about how good a dad that is. And so uh, I went to, I interviewed a family that had hired Family 360 and what happens was they put the family all around the table. Very nice people, by the way. Um, <laughs> Um, all around the table with those little stubby pencils, and uh, you, you have a questionnaire and evaluate Dad and uh, on how, uh, how is he as a listener, how is he for time, you know, um, is, can he hold his temper, um, and, and so on. And then the service gives you, whoopsie, um, an evaluation sheet. So this is your growth summary, how have you done, especially how have you done in family memory creation, one to seven point scale. And you know, your investment guide, so what high leverage activities can you give? Part of this is just sad. It's funny, but it's sad. I mean, this guy is spending money to try and be a good father, but in a bring work to home way in a, with a, 
with its own way of thinking. So a high leverage activity could be, instead of going camping with your kid on the weekend, don't have time for that, um, you uh, walk to the end of the driveway and back. So high leverage activity, he'll remember that. <laughs> what he'll remember is that some consultants came, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and uh, graded dad on this thing. Yeah. All right. Um, now, we're getting edgy here. Um, there was an ad on Craigslist um, calling for a woman in good shape, 20s or 30s, and she would get $30 an hour for doing billing, and she would get $100 an hour for traveling with this um, man who's the client, and she would be paid um, uh, $130 for sensual massages. Uh, she would have to um, be capable of discretion. Uh, no sex, please. It's not an escort service. I, sh I showed this to my sociology of family class at uh, University of California, Berkeley, and one uh, student said, you know, I haven't seen this ad but it doesn't surprise me. And another one said, it's like the guy wants to buy a wife, but he doesn't want to be a husband. All right. Um, so, and another person said, hey, that's pretty good money. <laughs> <laughs> So where are we going here? Where are we going? I want to just um, share with you one last point on this journey we're, we're on, on what I came to think of as a market frontier, growing market frontier. And it was the most poignant for me. Um, and it has to do with commercial surrogacy. In other words, if you are Oh, wait a minute, let me go back here. Uh, an infertile couple in Australia, or I mean, actually not Australia probably, but the United States or Canada, and um, it's too expensive. You want your own genetic child, you want, I don't want to adopt. Uh, you can hire uh, a surrogate for pay. In the United States, it's a lot. It's about uh, $30,000, and um, but in India, it costs much less. And so the egg of the woman can be harvested, the sperm of the man put together in a Petri dish and implanted in an Indian woman who for uh, nine, uh, this is the head of the clinic, who for nine months will carry uh, this child. I went to this clinic and had the most, for me, poignant interviews with these, with these surrogates. And, you know, I think surrogacy could be a beautiful experience, but I don't think we've really thought out how to keep it humane for all parties. This was like a baby farm, the Ashanka Clinic in Gujarat, a city of Anan. And the, um, the intended parents only had like 15 or minute or half an hour um, encounters with uh, the surrogate. 
uh, the surrogate is, of course, spoke a different language and was very poor and eager for the money. Um, and she, the surrogate lived in a separate dormitory for nine months, not allowed to see her husband for that period, quality control. Um, and uh, all the births were on Tuesdays. They were all C-section because that was more efficient. Baby was given immediately away. And the surrogates were taught to think of their wombs as carrying cases. And I asked them, how is that? Is that hard? They said, yes, that is hard. Um, they wanted to help th this couple. They badly needed the money. Um, and they didn't want it to feel as commercial as this place had made them feel about it. So, um, there they are. Whoops. And there's the baby. So, I felt they had to do what I've called emotional labor to kind of separate themselves um, from the baby that they had carried. So, what's dangerous about all of this? Not everybody is doing this, but it's on the cultural agenda. And I think one danger is that we can come to march right on into this and not look left and not look right, come to take it for granted. Uh, we're so busy. Um, life is demanding. There are many points of anxiety in living a modern life, we, and we don't feel like we are fully equipped to live it. So this could just easily fit into what Jerry Mander called in his book, The Absence of the Sacred, uh, that you hear the good news first, your cell phone, for example, uh, you, you, or a car. You say, hey, car is, uh, is uh, faster than the horse. Hey, that's good. But then you learn, actually, it's clogging freeways, and it's uh, polluting the earth and um, enhancing global warming. So there's bad news to it. It's a good bad news story. But one danger is we'll just go headlong um, with the good news and uh, not think about uh, the possible bad news. And those, because it meets our needs, but those needs will be increasingly shaped by the very experts who ministered to those needs, like this guy Michael, who who thought, gosh, I don't really know what tickles the fancy of my six-year-old. Only the expert does. So we'll come to lose, in a way, faith and confidence in our own knowledge about how to look for joy and look for meaning. And in fact, even if we never buy a service or a good, I think we're coming to think in commercial-like ways by focusing on the purchase point, the end point, the destination, the perfect birthday party, the perfect wedding, you know, the well-raised child. And we're not looking for joy and meaning in the production side of personal life, the journey toward that destination. And in fact, I think we can get caught up in a cycle so that you feel like you need these services, but in order to get those services, you have to pay for them, and to pay for them, you have to work long hours. Working long hours, you're not actually 
talking to your friends or going on a hike with your friends or um, uh, cultivating the kind of relationships that would be an alternative. So you get stuck in a cycle, and that cycle is in with a larger, I think, systemic cycle. So on the one hand, there are things that the market is inducing that make us anxious about our lives, especially as the rich get richer and the poor get poor, and we don't know which way we're going. Uh, so as we get, there's an anxiety market, and that infuses itself into our needs, which then are met by a growing service sector. So I guess um, I think we ought to invite ourselves with our flashlights and the lifted rug to explore, um, to explore that and in a way um, realize, realize, and this may be the dangerous idea, that it is within our power to change this and that we don't have to look for balance just within the government, say the executive and the judicial and the legislative branches of government. We look for balance over there. But what we're not looking at is the balance between the market and everything else. So maybe like George Orwell, um, we ought to struggle to see what's in front of our, our nose and change it. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. We've now got some time left to take some questions from you, as you will see that there's some microphones in the audience, so that if you do have something to ask Ali, come to one of those now. Um, I might just start us off by opening out a little bit that, that idea about um, other people doing things for us. Traditionally, there have always been people, other people doing things for us, not just for wealthy people, no. but, but if you compare you know, a matchmaker what, or, 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 for example, somebody, you know, the, the, the specialisation of baking in a village, you know, a long time ago. There have always been those roles for other people. What is the difference about, what is, what is the difference between those roles when they're done without the exchange of money? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. You take the matchmaker. Uh, in the matchmaker knew the village <laughs> and knew the history of the families and well that one's not such a good one I watched what happened to him in school and uh, it was a kind of a local knowledge uh, that drops out I think when uh, when you're looking at larger markets and uh, the focus is on the financial deal. Of course, money changed hands then too, but in a different kind of way. Um, there would be a, a, a cup of tea, there would be a meal together and maybe just slipped on the table and um, it, it was done in a more personalistic way. Question mm. 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 up here. Hi, Ali. Uh, great speech. Hi. Look, um, I'm interested, if you want to really break this cycle, why did we have to pay for this dangerous ideas service? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, you could have been doing this round your hearth fire at home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but maybe you needed a little bit of help. <laughs> I, I'll see you outside for my money. <laughs> oh, I think so far that's definitely the question of the festival for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you Hi. Um, what, some 70, 80 years ago, uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, predicted that by the beginning of the 21st century, we'd only need to work about 15 hours a week. And uh, this was at the height of the un mass unemployment. It was also before the service economy. So the service economy in the wealthy countries now is basically the, what you're talking about here. So how do we unfetishize, if you like, right. work, work, you know, our whole, all our government policy and the way we vote right. is in terms of jobs, 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 but the right. jobs are all service jobs. Right. You know, and some of the, and this is all part of the whole specialization that, I'm an economist, that yeah, Adam yeah. Smith talked yeah. about, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your response to how we go about as a society yeah. undoing that and doing more of it yeah. for ourselves. Because not everybody can enjoy reading, which is the alternative to coming here and paying $15. And our $15 <laughs> pays you to come to Australia because we can't spend 30 hours at home reading your book. <laughs> so we do it in one hour. We've specialised. <laughs> You know, I wrote a book called The Time Bind, When Home Becomes Work and Work Becomes Home. And uh, it's about the sort of move to the workaholism that you're talking about, the kind of uh, drive uh, to work. And in a way, I see this these service, the growth of the service sector as as in a way saying, look, we don't need to fix the problem of overwork. If you're working 10 hours a day and coming home at 7.30 at night, not to worry, there's a service worker, you know, who's doing family for you. So uh, I also see it as a way of, uh, of, in a way, not solving the problem of the second shift of having men understand the importance of themselves as parents at home and co-householders at home. So, in a way, this is like the easy out for resolving deeper problems about reshaping our personal lives. And that's why, actually, it's worth the money <laughs> to come to the festival. <laughs> I'm not paid to say this. Um, <laughs> Um, because uh, we get to talk about, we get to have a cultural agenda, which actually does drive um, economic life, uh, and, and think about it and um, shift gears. Yeah. Mm. Over here. You speak a lot about the commodification of what are uh, everyday experiences. What's so wrong with paying for them? There are parts of the world and places in the world where it matters what your name is or what colour of skin you have or what your sex is. 
and you can't get these things for love or money. Whereas money doesn't care what colour I am or how old I am or what gender I have. Uh. I'm sorry. So, so what's wrong with paying for services and also the fact yeah. that, that, say, compared to traditional societies, money so doesn't discriminate exactly. between... If, if uh, I had the wrong colour skin, then it didn't matter how much money I had, I couldn't get service in a certain place. Now I can. Yes. Money doesn't look at those things. Right. Okay. Good point. Good point. In other words... Um, uh, money can be liberating that way in the Absolutely. sense of uh, uh, liberating us from the confines of um, uh, definitions of race and all gender those, and everything things, else. Yeah. Yes, this is a good point that George Zimmel made in his uh, 19th century German sociologist who talked about the double edge of money, and I, I quite agree. But it's a question of then where do we draw a line? That's, that's what we need to talk about. Yeah. On microphone one. Hello. Hi. Um, I get the sense from today that outsource is a dirty word. Is that what you're hoping to convey? I'm getting a, it's a provocative word. Um, and I'm getting us to think about it because, uh, and I use that word to get us to think about it. I, I'm, you know, I think we all, I'm not talking about going back to a, a, a mythic past. Uh, and in America, we're not going over to, uh, to a European model of public provisions. I mean, we're in a way stuck in the market. This is already where we are. Uh, and I'm calling here, uh, for us to slowly look at where we are, to do what George Orwell is, is talking about, seeing what's in front of our nose. In other words, a friend of mine said this uh, before I was doing this. Um, I said, uh, you know, I'm afraid of moralism here. How am I going to do it? You know what he said? Um, he said, before you say whether it's good or bad, you have to ask, what is it? This is a book that answers that. So if it's a conversation, um, I just wanted to let you know, this week I outsourced my laundry and, um, sure, and my me meals, too. but I actually then had about five or six extra hours to play on the ground with my six-month-old daughter. Marvellous. So if we're talking about connection and enhancing that, then by outsourcing some of that other stuff, I actually was able to, I think, enhance the relationship with my daughter. So. Yes, yes, I, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone number two. There's a thing in our society now where, where um, people are expected when they, uh, to be trained to do their work. Um, people spend years and years of training and that's a, you're expected to need that training uh, to do your job properly as, as well as getting experience from the job. But when it comes to those personal things like um, having a relationship with your wife and bringing up your children, I, the the ethos has been that the, the training doesn't happen formally. You just, you're just supposed to pick it up or learn it or something. And um, really being a parent is something that you can learn from and be, and be trained in, in, in other societies. Uh, 
there were role models and, and extended families who could provide that sort of training. So I guess the part of the challenge with that uh, outsourcing thing is that the same, the same challenge that you have with, with training somebody, you, you actually training this person and improving them or are you just doing their job for them? Yes, that's a wonderful thing. What you're saying is, look, uh, we, uh, we need help. <laughs> we, we're not trained to do this. And uh, where do we go? And does uh, some experts take it over and do it for you, but others help you do a better job? I, I think that's an excellent point. You know, in this book, The Time Bind, I uh, interviewed a bunch of... Uh, of, of workers at a Fortune 500 company. And when I asked them, what comes first for you? Is it work or home? They all said, and with great feeling, home. Home comes first. I, I don't uh, live to work, I work to live. But at the same time, when I asked them, where is it you feel you get the most help in trying to do what you're trying to do? Is it at home or is it at work? And workers would say, we have a great mentoring program at our, at Americo, at this, this large company. And so if I'm running into trouble, uh, engineering problem, chances are someone's helping me. But one shift supervisor said to me, if I'm doing uh, the right thing at work, chances are my boss is clapping me on the back. But if I'm doing the right thing at home, chances are my 15-year-old son is giving me hell for it. <laughs> so appreciation, help, even leisure. You know, where are you going to get the time to read the the newspapers often at work and not at home. It's like the whole village well has, in a way, gone, gone to work. And that isn't bad. It's like, it's like outsourcing. It's double-edged. But we need to put on the agenda um, and deal with what feel like scary and anxiety-provoking ideas to figure out where we're going to uh, draw the line. Experts can be great. Microphone four. Um, a couple of, I guess, questions stroke thoughts. I'm not sure what's wrong in countries where over 50% of marriages end in divorce having dating websites or family counselling. Those seem to me to be entirely sensible ways of spending money, much better than spending them on divorce lawyers and family courts. And, and, and I wonder, and I'm sure in your book you go into more depth, but I wonder whether you didn't sort of touch on the, the real issue, which is that if you look at the average wage in most developed Western markets, and then look at the cost of buying a house, it's probably something like 10 times the average income. And that creates a, the, the need for both people to be at work for large portions of time, which therefore knock on effect, knock on effect. But equally, the other thing I guess that occurs to me is that apart from perhaps this sort of golden bubble we've had for about the last 70 years, 90% of the people in this room probably couldn't have read your book and certainly wouldn't have been able to afford to waste a Saturday because they'd have to be working in a factory. I don't like the word waste. Because yeah. they were, <laughs> compared, <laughs> compared to the fact that they would have been essential for their livelihood for them to be working. So I, I appreciate you, that it needs to be on the agenda, but I wonder whether you're not escalating something. And, and certainly then I find actually the connection between dating websites and Indian surrogacy actually mildly offensive. And that's, I think, slightly dangerous because you exaggerate and create risk or of uh, overemphasizing things that aren't actually as bad as they may seem. 
<laughs> Isn't it a dangerous idea to equate Match.com with surrogacy? I'm anymore? not equating them. Read the book. Like <laughs> Read the book <laughs> and email me afterwards. I don't think I equate them. Right, okay. Thanks for your in-depth. Microphone number three. Hello. Hi, Ali. Um, my name's Andrew. Thank you for a very engaging talk, firstly. Um, I've got, I suppose, two thoughts and a question. So the first, the first thought is uh, there could also be a very large trend happening at the moment that may also be contributing to this phenomenon, and that would be, I think, the shift in technology that we're seeing, like rapid adoption of like Google growing, Facebook growing so much, all these technology companies growing and disrupting and changing things. That's also leading to, um, at the same time, uh, not, not, a, not a similar growth in employment. So GDP and employment have now decoupled. So you see unemployment still going up, especially in the US, but yeah. GDP is also going up. Right. So I Maybe think... Maybe can I ask, sorry, to get, to get to a question because we're, we're getting quite short of time. Okay, sure. Thanks. So I guess, is the solution perhaps um, that more meaning needs to come into these, um, these exchanges with people? And, and that, that, the, the other gentleman's question about being here today versus reading the book, I would argue that this is a more meaningful experience than just reading a book. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps that's, mm -hmm. that might be the solution. In, in your view, would you, yeah. would you share that? Yes, uh, that's a, gr a great question and concern. And here, what we're doing, it's more like a community. We're talking with one another, and there's something wonderful about that. Um, and, uh, you know, in 2008, in the United States, there was the big recession slash depression, and people had lost their jobs, lost their houses, uh, and uh, were, were responding to this by turning inward, becoming ashamed of their situation, feeling alone. And there was a movement started uh, uh, of starting what are called common security clubs. They're now called resilience circles, where groups of people that might be in neighborhood or uh, a union or a church group would get together, 10 in a living room. How can we help each other? And uh, how can we share skills? How can we um, buy food in bulk? And uh, there was also, this started in the Northeast where it's very cold and very expensive to heat your house. They would go around on weekends and winterize the house, cutting the heating bill in half. And in the process, make friends. It was a wonderful thing. It spread across the nation. And it's a kind of an attempt to revitalize community uh, and take the shame out of suffering a, a circumstance that's not uh, anyone's fault. But it wasn't so easy for people to ask for help. They had to learn again how to be in a community in a way. Everyone was eager to give, but felt a little shame to ask. So in a way, there was a relearning of community life that in our modern life, maybe we need to dip back to some old skills and add them into, um, into our lives. Question from microphone number two. Hi. Um, I was just wondering whether you think that these uh, baby surrogacy programs in India are taking us closer and closer to a society like that of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I, at the last part of I didn't understand. So it's a question about whether things like the model of surrogacy with surrogates in India is taking us closer to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. 
Well, it presents itself, this particular clinic, um, yes, but what I really think is happening is that um, medical science and technology on one hand and the market on the other are like two headless horsemen. You know, one really wants only to find, to discover new possibilities, human possibilities. The other only wants to make money and nothing wrong with that. But here they are going uh, ahead and our conversations like this, where we're trying to think what social norms do we want? What, how, how do we want this to work out? In the United States, in uh, uh, college newspapers, um, uh, women are asked to sell their eggs and, and you know you get a higher price if you're blonde and you've done well uh, in your studies. Well, you know, we are already in the United States in a, in a quite, we're enjoying advances of technology and market, but I don't, I think we're in a culture lag and we need to um, figure out um, where to go, where to go, yeah. We're out of time, I'm afraid, and I think that's a wonderful point to end this discussion. I, I mean, I think Ali's point that it's really about having these kind of conversations is one that uh, I certainly appreciate very much at the start of what is going to be a weekend of conversation. If you would like to hear more from Ali, she'll be in a session this afternoon with a wonderful panel. Uh, the title is The World is Not Ready for Women in Power, and she'll be there with Hannah Rosen, Vandana Shiva, um, Anne Summers uh, and with Julia Baird in the chair. So if you're not already coming, please join us. Um, don't forget that you can tell everybody what you thought and what services you'll be outsourcing today <laughs> at, at hashtag FODI. Um, Ali will be signing books in the foyer now so that if you're interested uh, in, in taking that home and spending those 30 hours, rather than just getting the quick and easy outsourced version here, please uh, go to the foyer. And um, I will look forward to seeing you during the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you.